It is great to be here. Got to go up on Signal Mountain yesterday and visit with my sisters and enjoyed that. And uh, two of them are here today, Billy and Idabel. And we're certainly glad to see them, as always. It's good to be back at White Oak. It's interesting, this is the 65th and I just turned 65. So that's pretty good. A lot of folks didn't think I was going to make it to 65, but I kind of pulled, fooled them a little bit and made it anyway. It's great to be here, and I appreciate this congregation. What you have meant to my life and Wesley's, uh, words could not describe. I mean, you know, we decided we want to go to a school of preaching, and the elders here, when Wesley asked them what we need to do, said, first thing you need to do is tell us. And then they went to work and sent us to the Memphis School of Preaching, and ever since we've been trying to go uh, in full gear toward the kingdom and toward heaven. And so it's... uh, You've had a great part of our lives and still do. The church here still supports me financially. When I started doing what I do now, I had to go out and raise my living. And White Oak was one of the first places I requested help from. And they helped me and they've helped other students as well. And uh, your work, I don't know how you do all of it, but you do. And I appreciate it very, very much. I appreciate Jim and Janice allowing us to stay in their home last evening. And Molly, that's the dog in case you didn't know. And... uh, we had a good time. We had uh, enjoyed it very, very much. You know, you walk out on their patio and you can see Signal Mountain. So I took a picture of it. And I've got a picture. I also got a video of it. I don't know if they know that or not. But I, I'm kind of sneaky. I'll video stuff when you're not looking. And, uh, but it's uh, turned, out, <laughs> turned out all right. A beautiful mountain. But it's uh, good to get to be home. I appreciate the work that you're doing here with uh, the Good News Program. Got to see a couple of those this morning and a new studio, and I know all is going well with that, and that's a great program. Watched all over our brotherhood uh, in areas where I go in meetings. They are watching that, and I appreciate that work, and Jim and Janice and what they do, and their work here at White Oak, and the elders and every member that makes this work the success uh, that it is. So it's good to be here, and uh, as he mentioned, 1969, on a Saturday morning, I came here to be baptized. Brother Jimmy Eaton was in his office. He We'd called him to meet him here and uh, never had worshipped in the Church of Christ in my life. Knew nothing about it other than what I had learned from God's book, knowing about the one church and wanting to be saved. And so Jimmy talked to us, asked a number of questions, because naturally you'd want to with someone who is not familiar with the church to make sure they knew what they was doing. And it was obvious we did because we'd spent a great deal of time studying our Bibles and wanted to be a member of the Lord's Church. And so came a member of the church Saturday and worshiped for the first time in the Churches of Christ on Sunday morning. And uh, we have not looked back. Enjoy it. The Lord's Church is the greatest thing that can happen to your life. It'll change you for the better. And so it's wonderful. I tell folks, every time Christianity goes somewhere, it makes wherever they've gone better. It touches the lives of people, and it makes their lives better and enhances their lives. But I've looked forward to this since I got the invitation to come. I appreciate, uh, I know the good food that's being prepared. Now, I don't know how to, didn't know how to take this. I asked some of the men, where are your wives? They said, they're downstairs stirring stuff up. And uh, <clears throat> Margaret, you were one of them, by the way, that happened to be mentioned explicitly. And uh, some things never change. You know, sometimes people stir stuff up and they just continue to do it. And that's not always a bad thing. And in this case, I know it was a good thing, and we'll look forward to being a part of the stuff that's been stirred up later. But uh, I appreciate uh, everything already been done to prepare for this. Now, 
in thinking about the Bible and lives. I'm not sure that you could go to a better place than the book of Genesis to learn basic principles of how we ought to live and the things that are really important in life. And so I want us to look in what I call lessons from paradise. God created Adam and Eve and put them in a beautiful paradise. Now I don't know about you, but I have oftentimes thought how I would like to be able to view what the Garden of Eden looked like when Adam and Eve were placed there. I know everything that was pleasant to the eyes and some of the most beautiful things, no doubt, that you could ever see were right there in their eyesight and in their presence. And what a beautiful opportunity to spend time with God and with your beautiful wife in a place called Eden or Paradise. And so you think about the best of the times, that's it. It won't get any better until later that that paradise is so beautiful. And man forfeits his right to it, as we'll see later. But when he gets into that mess, God prepares him another place that's even more beautiful than the first place he prepared. And it's uh, eternal and can never be uh, cast out of it once we get there. But there's so many beautiful lessons that we learn in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And I know I don't have to tell you this, but the name Genesis means beginning. And that's important because this is where everything had its beginning. Now when you think about that, remember God was before the beginning and so God comes before creation. And he ought to come before anything else in our lives. They had first place when it started, he must have first place now. Or else he can have a place in my heart or life at all if he doesn't have first place. And so I've got to put him there first. And when he has first place, that's where he belongs. And things have a way of being better and wonderful. And so here God is, he creates man and puts him in this garden. And so I want us to think about the very first thing that's very important to me when I think about the book of beginnings and the lessons learned from paradise is the fact that man is made in the image of God. Man is different from anything else God had created. Now God had created a lot of things. He had created a lot of animals, but there was nothing that had yet been created in His image. But when God made man, in Genesis 1.26, it's important to notice the wording. God said to the deity, of course, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. Notice, after our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, of everything that God has created, this is the first time that God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And he'll have control over the things of the earth. And so God made us in his image. Now, what that says loud and clear is, we're made in the image of God. Let's live like it. We're made in the likeness and image of God. Let's act like it. Let's do not act like animals and let's don't act like some kind of uh, person or individuals 
that have a flippant attitude and a bad attitude toward life and others. We are made in His likeness, in His image. That makes us special. And because we're special, we ought to live like that. You see, this is the real sad problem with people buying into the concept of evolution that says you came from slime and you'll go back to it. Jeffrey Dahmer, I have a quote in my files where he said, I believed all my life I just came from slime and I was going back to it, so why couldn't I live any way I wanted to live? I wasn't going to let an individual or a society tell me how I ought to live, develop my ethical system for me. I can do that for myself. And you know what? If you came from an animal, that would be fine. But you didn't. You were not created or brought about through a result of some evolutionary process from a lower life to where you are now. You are made in the likeness and image of God. And you ought not blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called. It is special. You're special in the eyes of God. And so am I. And so when we live our lives here on earth, we need to live with always the intent in mind that we are made in God's likeness. And we're made in His image. And so we are special, and we don't need to forget that. Now I want you to notice something else that we learn from this paradise garden. We also learn that God is concerned about us. God showed His concern for man. Now the deists tell us that God created us, but then He just sits back and watches us. He doesn't intervene in any way, shape, form, or fashion in our lives. He just created man and said, I'm going to watch now and see what he does. But you see, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Genesis. That's not the God of creation. The God of creation created us in his likeness and his image, and he's concerned about us. Look over in chapter 2, verse 8. In Genesis 2, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, now watch, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also, in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Notice everything that this man, God, had made to sustain his life, God gave him. He didn't just put him out in the wilderness and say, let's just see how he survives, the survival of the fittest. No, he said, I'm going to make man, but I'm going to put man in a very special place. And when he did that, he showed his concern for mankind. He gave them the trees that are pleasant to the eyes. Now, there's no time like traveling like now. I mean, you're going, I've been over into Kentucky the other day, and I was over in uh, West Virginia and Virginia and those places, and the trees are turning. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Matter of fact, on my cell phone, these phones are amazing. I videoed while I was driving down the road. Now, I wasn't watching the trees. I was videoing those out the window while I was driving. I was very careful to watch where I was going. And I videoed that. And I, I did a little uh, tape to it, too, while I was videoing. I said, well, we're driving through the state of Kentucky, and this is some of the foliage, and it's beautiful, and the glory of God shows his handiwork, all of that. And it dawned on me I wasn't in Kentucky. I was in Virginia. <laughs> so I thought, well, I know how Joe Biden feels now. He doesn't ever know where he is. And, of course, I didn't know where I was either. So there I was, and uh, I haven't edited the tape yet, Jim, by the way, to change it, but it dawned on me, I'm not in Kentucky. I'm in the state of Virginia going toward Kentucky. And so we were, I was videoing that. And, but anyway, God made things beautiful, pleasant to the eyes, and placed them in the garden where that was. He also put a tree there that was good for food. 
Oh, I like food. Don't you? I can tell some of you really like food, okay? And I do too. Food's good. And I like good food, by the way. And so here, God placed them there, gave them all this stuff to see, but he also gave them good stuff to eat. You see, God cares about you. God wants what's best for you, and you don't need to ever forget that. I think some people have in their mind God's out to get them in a bad way. God's not out to get you. God's out to save you. God takes care of you. God provides for you. God knows what you need better than you know what you need. And he says, I'll take care of it for you. I'll give it all to you. You just do what I ask you to do, and you receive the best of both. It's the way it works, and you can't beat that setup. And so God placed man in this beautiful garden, gave him a tree pleasant to the eyes, one that was good for food, and he also put the tree of life there. This also says a great deal about man and God's concern for him because God don't want you like a pawn on a chessboard that he just moves around and you do what you do because that's just the way he's making you do it. You see, he wanted you to obey him out of free volition because you love him and you put him first in your heart. Now, if you want the key to success, Jesus gave it to us when he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your neighbors, yourself, and that's, that's it. On this, the whole commandments hang, and that's still true today. If we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's with our total being, and we love our neighbors like we love ourselves, then everything's going to be okay. You see, God knows what's best. But he wants you to do this because you want to do it. Not because you're made to do it. You want to do it. You're anxious to do it. You're eager to do it because you know that that's what God said and that's what's best for life because we're made in his likeness and image. And we know he cares for us. And so the concept the atheists and others try to paint, paint sometimes of God is unfair as if he's an uncaring God, a God that doesn't really care about what's going on in your life. He's just watching because God does care. And he cared enough, as we'll see in a moment, to give his only begotten son. There's something else that in the garden that is so beautiful that we need to learn so desperately. And that is... The home is the basic unit of society. Do you know that? The home is the basic unit of society. If the home's wrong, everything else is wrong too. If the home is wrong, the society's wrong. When the home is wrong, not only is the society wrong, but the church is wrong. Now, why I say that is because the society and the church is made up of homes. Your home and my home. And if my home's all messed up, I can't have my home all messed up and my church all right and the society all right. And so when we get it wrong here, we're wrong the rest of the way. Now that's why the devil has levied these fiery darts at our homes. That's why he's done that. Uh, I believe my brother over here was a police chief maybe in Chattanooga. He better than anyone else could tell you what happens when the home goes wrong, goes right, goes south. You see, that's a tragedy, and it messes up everything for everyone. And so we got to get this right. Now, in Genesis 2, 24, God said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. You see, he'll leave his father and mother. And I won't know what Adam thought about that, since he didn't have a father and mother. He, somebody said he's the luckiest man in the world. He didn't have a mother-in-law. Now, I don't buy that. Because I love my mother-in-law, in case you're taping, I want that to be sent to her house directly. But uh, I love my mother-in-law. 
she's wonderful. And she lives by us now for uh, about 20, 30, 40 years of our marriage. She lived away. We did good then. And she's with us now uh, in Elizabethan, and we still do even better because she's a special lady. But Adam and Eve were told this, you're going to leave father and mother, and you're going to be one. I don't know what that meant to them, but it wasn't just for them. It was for all of us to realize that the marriage bond is special. One man, one woman till death. And so when the home is right and we realize the home is the basic unit of society and as goes the home, so goes the church and nation, then we've got to work hard to make our homes what they need to be. Personal evangelism needs to begin at home. And that's where it's got to start. I tell preachers in the Tri-City School of Preaching all the time, don't get so busy trying to convert the world, you lose your own families. And I've known the preachers that have done that. They got so busy trying to save the world, they lost their own homes. Adam, I thought, did a beautiful job in so many respects, but where he went wrong, he and Eve, is when they messed their home life up. And we'll see more about that in a moment. But then, a little bit later, you see Noah. And Noah is my hero. I'll just be up front with you. Because Noah, in his work, in his lifetime, saved his family. Now, I think that's pretty good. There wasn't but eight of them, but I've got news for you. Those eight people were the most special people in the life of Noah than anyone else. Miss Noah and their three sons and wives were special to them. And they are special. And so, he was able, through his work and his family, to save themselves... And so when they went in that ark, there wasn't but one family, but that was Noah's. And in eternity, if there's only one family that is able to enter into heaven, I'm sorry, but I want it to be the Kraft family. It don't have to be that way. It can be all our families. And we're grateful for that. But their lesson is the fact that here is the home, and the home is the basic unit of society. And when you see in the Old Testament the home going wrong, you see the result of it. When you see it going right, like in Noah's case, you see the result of it. And so then you have the choice to make relative to your own home. You know, when Joshua said, look, if these gods out here poses a problem for you and and, uh, you just can't serve the God that is the God of heaven, if you want to serve the gods that your father served on the other side of the flood, go for it. If you want to serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, if that's the way you just got to do it, go for it. But for me and my house, not just for me, but for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. See, it starts in the home. And when you go through the book of Acts, my favorite of all conversion stories is when you see entire households obeying the gospel. Isn't that special? The household of Lydia. The Philippian jailer in his household, Cornelius in his household. So many times, not just the individuals, but the household. Me and my house will serve the Lord. And then their friends, in many cases, becoming members of that beautiful body. But the home. And we've lost sight, I think, sometimes of the value of the home and what it means to us. And so we see that the home is the basic unit of society. But we also learn... That man was created a free moral agent, as we talked about a moment ago, so that he wasn't like a robot, just moved about. Genesis 2, 16, the Lord God said, 
the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. I was sitting right here in a lectureship several years ago, and Brother Rogers was teaching, but he made a point from this passage where he says, the literal Hebrew text here says, that in dying you shall surely die. That that would be a literal translation of the Hebrew text. So he said, in the day you eat thereof, in dying you shall surely die. And that's exactly what happened. He put into effect that day what was going to lead to his ultimate death, that in dying you're surely going to die. But the point is, he put the tree there and said, don't eat it. Now, you think Adam and Eve had any trouble understanding what God said. That's so simple we could all understand it. You can have anything in this garden to eat you want, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you're not to eat of it. And the day you eat thereof in dying you shall surely die. And so you don't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. We've already seen because we're made in God's likeness and image, we have the capability of reasoning correctly and making the right choices and therefore... We're not robots, and so God made us free moral agents. And so along with that comes the responsibility of doing what God says. Like Joshua said, me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You can serve these other gods. You are a free moral agent, and you can do that if that's the choice you want to make. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And so today, you are made a free moral agent, and so am I. And we can make the right choices. And we've got to realize something else. When we make our choices, that also shows that we are responsible beings. Have you ever known anyone that always blames someone else for his or her mistakes? Probably all of us have known someone. I had a fellow at C Street for 24 and a half years I preached there. This fellow drove me nuts more than one time, I'll tell you that. And his mother was to blame for everything he ever did that was wrong. I don't know what she did, but he hated his mother. And he said, I am what I am today, and I make these bad choices today because of my mom. And he'd go on and on and on. And when I could finally get him quiet, I'd say, calm down, go home, take your medicine. <laughs> but calm down and come to realize you're responsible. You can't go through life blaming your mom. When you get before God at the day of judgment, you know what God's going to say? What have you done? And you're going to give an account for your life before God. And this cop-out of my mom made me do it, or I am the way I am because of my mom, I'm not going to cut it. Now, I realize moms and dads have influence in the lives of their children. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying when you grow up, you reach a point in life where you become responsible for your decisions. And we need to train our children to know that. That you're responsible when you make bad choices. You're responsible when you make good choices. You're responsible. And you've got to understand that. Now in 1 Timothy 2.14, we have some inspired statement from the other side of the picture, so to speak, back about Adam and Eve and what occurred on that occasion when they did what they did. Now watch, in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived... But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, Eve honestly, sincerely believed what the devil told her. Adam was not deceived about this. He went into what he did with his eyes wide open. And that's sad. 
you know, you hear people say, if, if you make mistakes, at least do it with a good conscience. Do it because you believe it's the right thing. But Adam didn't do that. Adam realized this is wrong. Satan didn't deceive him for a minute in it. And he went into it with his eyes wide open. Now, who's responsible? Both Adam and Eve. Eve, though honest and sincere, was still wrong. You know, when you make bad choices and you're sincere and honest in them, you're still making a bad choice. If I do something that's wrong, it doesn't matter how sincerely I may believe that that is right, it doesn't make a wrong a right. And I've got to understand that. So while, uh, while there's something to be said about honesty and sincerity and integrity, there's also something to be said about a standard that's right and wrong that we all have to submit to. And when I do that which is wrong, it's always wrong, no matter how sincere or honest that I may be in it. And so it's wrong. And so Eve was deceived. She honestly believed that when the day she partook thereof, she believed the devil's lie, and now she's got to answer for it. You know, Solomon said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole of man. Then he says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God knows not only what you do, he knows what you think. And so you've got to give an account for both, and so do I. We have to give an account before God for that which we've done openly and that which we've done secretly. He knows what we do. And we've got to give an account to him. And so it doesn't matter if I fool you, I can't fool him, and he's the one that I have to give an account to, not you. I've heard James Watkins say many a time that if you don't fear God, why would you fear a bag of bones? And that's right. Why would I care if you know what I'm doing or not if I don't care that God knows? Why would I sneak around and do something thinking, well, boy, I got away with that. Nobody here in White Oak knows I ever committed that sin. God knows I committed it. And he's the one I got to give an account to, not you folks here at White Oak. And so he knows what we do and therefore knows our lives. There's something else in the paradise of God that we learn I think is so crucial. And that is man is to be occupied. Man is to be an occupied being. Did you know that? There was a number of years ago, I was preaching at C Street at the time, and there were a lot of teenage suicides being recorded uh, at record pace. And there was even in an elementary school near us over in Sullivan County where a group of elementary students had plotted a suicide thing where they were going to take the, their own lives, a bunch of them. And this made local news. It was found out about and they stopped it before it occurred. But I got to looking at this and I thought, what, what's wrong? Why is there so many teenagers and even younger contemplating suicide? I'm sure my mom thought about killing me many times, but I never once entertained the idea of wanting to kill myself. I mean, I, I don't like pain. And I don't know if any way you can kill yourself without pain. There may be a system I don't know, but I'm not interested in it anyway. But you think of that. But I thought, what's the problem? And I began to do some research on the Internet and stuff, and it's not always easy to find out what's going on behind the scenes, but... There seemed to be something that I picked up on at least, and it may be incidental, but I picked up on the fact that it seemed like the people that were doing this had no purpose of life. They didn't have anything to do. 
and they didn't know of anything they wanted to do. And so they felt like, well, why, why would I want to be here? There's no purpose of life. I'm not, I don't have any jobs to do. I don't feel important. And so I went back and I looked, and you know, in Genesis 2.15, the Bible says that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. He gave him something to do. He gave him something to occupy his time. And can't you imagine that as he began to dress this garden and to keep this garden, he could sit back and say, look at my handiwork. And he could view that. I asked my wife, you've seen our yard? You'd know she's got a yard that's immaculate. There's flowers everywhere. It's beautiful. She works 24-7 in their yard. I wouldn't care if it's all mowed down. There's a field there. It wouldn't make no difference to me, but it does to her. And I asked her, I said, Betty, why do you spend all of this time in this yard and in your garden, and it's her garden. I eat out of it, but it's her garden. And it's a beautiful garden. And she said, I just love to watch things grow. She gets excitement and fulfillment out of the fact, did you see that lily? I wouldn't know a lily from a billy. I mean, you know it. But it's important to her. And it's beautiful. I like to look at it, I'll be honest with you. It's beautiful. And she feels self-worth from it. That's worth more than all the gold in California. You see, as a friend of mine said, I got a million-dollar home in Brentwood, Tennessee, and it paid for it, and I'm not happy. Betty can have a rose garden in a little piece of land in Elizabethan, Tennessee, and be happy. And that's the difference. She feels what God wants us to feel. That we have something to do. An idle mind's a devil's workshop. Now that's not stated that way in the Bible that I know of, but I'll tell you this, it's taught implicitly from the get-go. And so when you have this beautiful lesson, you see man is to be occupied. We're here. Get busy. Do stuff. It'll keep you out of trouble. <laughs> Believe me, it'll keep you out of trouble when you're doing the good stuff. Find something that's good to do and do it. You know, Solomon said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it and do it with all of your might. That's occupation. And you have this. You know, when you see people losing their jobs and they feel worthless and useless, the suicide rate goes up. And it's sad that that's the case because they're not occupying their time and their effort. Turn your Bibles over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. There's a verse here I don't want you to miss relative to uh, this point that I think is just speaks in abundance for us. He's talking about the different sins of the different groups of people that uh, had involved themselves in in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel said in verse 49 of Ezekiel chapter 16, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. All right, what was the iniquity? He said there's pride. Fullness of bread, now look at this next one, and an abundance of idleness. An abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, and neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor or the needy. Here was a problem. God said there was an abundance of idleness. You didn't have anything to do. And when you don't have anything good to do, you're going to get in trouble. You have been created a being that needs to be occupied. 
You see, fill your heart and fill your life with things that you do, that you love to do, because they're right. And you can pillow your head at night knowing, I gave it my best shot today. And so you see, this is beautiful when you realize that man is to be an occupied being. But there's something else that we learn that's important as well. And that is lust. And the word lust just means a desire. There's lust, it's okay. There's lust, it's not okay. It depends. There's some things I can desire. There's some things that God says don't desire that. And so, but the word itself, the word lust, I think we just take the word lust, don't we, and throw it over in the bad category. You know, here's a list of words that are bad, and we take lust, and we throw it over there with all of those bad words. Well, lust is not necessarily a bad word. Because we all have desires. And that's what lust is. Lust is a desire. But lust must be controlled. And it's when lust is out of control that we're in trouble. See, we have to control that lust. Now watch, Genesis 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Notice Eve saw that this tree was good for food. She observed that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree, look at it, it was a tree to be desired. It was a tree that was to be desired, to make one wise. And Eve could have noticed that about that tree and not have committed sin. She could have looked at that tree. She could have saw all the stuff she saw. She could have desired to partake of that tree. And if she'd have just walked off and stayed away from that tree, she'd have been okay. Because she'd have been controlling her desires. But she didn't. And that's why sometimes, you know, you're placed in situations. I was asked to come over to the Carolinas not long ago and give a lecture on one of their lectureship programs on pornography. And I said, you know, you see pornography everywhere. You see it at the grocery store. If you go to Walmart, you'll see pornography. Even in some churches of Christ on Sunday morning, you can see pornography. That's sad to say, isn't it? But it's true. And anyway, you can see it everywhere. I can't help sometimes what a woman's wearing when she walks by me at Walmart but I don't have to follow her through the store. You know, a beautiful woman can be shabbily clad and you can see her and you can't help but see her. She walks right in front of you. But you don't have to continue to look. You see, you can say, that woman's beautiful. She desires, uh, she's desirable. But then you can walk away from that because you control your desire. You realize God said that's not something you can have. And you, you go the other way. You can even flee the appearance of evil, and sometimes that's the best thing to do. Get out of Dodge. But anyway, sometimes you cannot help what you see. David could not help but see Bathsheba, but he didn't have to continue to look, and he didn't have to sin for her, and he didn't have to commit adultery, and he didn't have to impregnate her, and he didn't have to have her husband killed. He didn't have to do any of that if he'd have just left the housetop and gone and done where, what he should have done and been where he should have been. He would have never seen that dilemma anyway. But you see, the thing is that you can look at something without committing sin. Even desire something, say, well, you know, that's something I can't partake of, even though I see that it's desirous. 
And so she saw this. It was in the garden. She could see it every day if she wanted to. What she needed to do is stay as far away from it as she could. But obviously she did not. And so she partook of that tree of knowledge. And when she did, lust, desire, was no longer being controlled by the word of God. And so you're starting to see humanism come on the scene. Humanism, first time it was ever taught, was taught in the Garden of Eden by the devil. You'll be as wise as God. You'll know right and wrong. You won't have to God tell you anything, and you'll be as smart as he is. You see, you are the real God. That's humanism. And she bought the concept. Sincerely and honestly, she bought the concept. Now listen to what James says about this whole picture. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. You think you're going to be tempted? Every day. But you can endure temptation. He says, blessed is the man that endures temptation. When he's tried, he will receive a crown of life. The Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted. Now watch. When he's drawn away of his own, his own lust, his own desires. He's drawn away by his own lust and desires. And he is enticed. And, he says, when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Now, that's the system. That happened with Adam and Eve and everybody else down the line to us, and even us, at some time or another, have violated God's law. And we were drawn away of our own lust and enticed. And lust conceived. And when lust conceived, it brought forth sin. And when sin gets through with you, it will bring death. That's why we've got to take care of the sin problem by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we can be justified in his sight and be made what we ought to be made. Love not the world, John wrote, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's where Eve went astray. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And so you see her own lust. And so don't love the world. Those things are of the world. They pass away, but he that endures by the word of the Lord abides forever. And so John was right on the money. And so Satan tempted everyone through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And everybody succumbed to it but one man, and that was Jesus. Jesus did not give in to that technique. And even though that technique had worked, and been successful throughout all of these times and efforts. Let me tell you something else. How much time have I got? Huh? I'm about done? I didn't know that. Uh, one other thing, and we'll quit. God means what he says. God means what he says. God said, don't partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. He meant what he said. Now, moms and dads, when we tell our children something, let's mean what we say. It won't take a child long to realize you don't mean what you say if you don't mean what you say. Billy and Ida Bill testified to this. When daddy and mom told you something, they meant what they said. If daddy said, and I was out early with him one morning, he said, you're going to get a whipping when you get home, I'd keep him out all day thinking, the old man will forget it before we get back to the house. You know what? He never forgot it. If he said it, it came to pass. And that's what we need to do. We need to be truthful. So if you don't mean it, don't say it, okay?
Thank you so much. God bless you. Hope these points have been helpful to us from Genesis.